We come to the second reading and the preaching of God's word. So I invite you to turn in your pew Bible to page 884. And we're going to read Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. I invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, prepare our hearts now to receive your word, to hear it, to embrace it, to love it. And to love the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your word. And who is the content and the subject of your word? Lead us to the foot of the cross once again and work in us the kind of trust that lays a hold of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. I remember uh, my days in seminary when I was training to be a pastor and Uh, My wife, Natalie, and I, we got to move to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's, you know, that's a historic place. It's a place with deep uh, history in our country. And it's, it's interesting because you'll be walking around Philadelphia and everything looks old. But what you really need to understand uh, what things are is you need a good tour guide, right? I'd be looking, be looking at a, um, a shack, you know, just east of Phil, uh, west of Phil, Philadelphia, and I don't really know what it is. And the tour guide comes along and says, oh, you're looking, but you're, you're at Valley Forge. You're looking at a place where George Washington camped with his men. And um, then I'd be wandering downtown and uh, go past the cemetery and a tour guide uh, would say, hang on, come back here. You just missed the grave of Benjamin Franklin, right? There, there are things all around you in Philadelphia, and you can just walk right past it. But what you need is a good tour guide to point you to it and show you that the place is filled with meaning all around you. And that's very much what's happening as we come to this portion of the Gospel of Luke. You have a tour guide, a very, a very good tour guide at that. And his name is Luke. And God gave him to you to navigate what's going on at the cross. As you are hearing about the cross of Jesus, as you're seeing um, Christ portrayed as crucified. 
There's so much that we can miss and we can um, focus on one aspect. And Luke says, hang on, back up, back up. You need to look at this. And what he's helping us to see as he points us to different aspects of the cross is he helping, he's helping us to focus on what we really need to see so that we understand the cross and believe it. Has that ever bothered you that you can, you'll be a Christian that hears about a cross and maybe has a cross necklace or you know, sees crosses everywhere and yet the cross seems to lose its meaning in our culture and in our day? Has that ever nagged at your heart? Well, it's a good thing that we're here in, in this portion of the gospel of Luke because Luke wants to help you to not just walk past the cross. He wants you to back up and look at it and understand it and believe. And we're going to see our tour guide point us to three miracles on the cross of Jesus. There are three distinct things that happen and they are miraculous things. And what they are showing us is what the cross is really all about. Signs from God that your tour guide points you to. And the first of these miracles, the first thing that Luke says, hang on, slow down. Did you catch this? It's something that happens in nature itself. Kids, what happens when Christ is on the cross? What happens to the light of day? It fails. It stops working. And darkness, this kind of eerie darkness settles over the land uh, for hours. Now, the Jewish calendar has different um, hours of day than we do. It, it kind of sets them up differently. And so you need to know that the sixth hour of the day when Christ is crucified is about 12 o'clock noon, right? Um, about about um, an hour from now in, in today's time. And then... Three hours later is the, is the ninth hour of the day in Jewish calendar, and that's 3 o'clock p.m. And so from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., this deep darkness settles over the land. And you think, well, that doesn't make sense because 12 to 3 is supposed to be the hottest time of the day. This, the time when the sun is beating down and, and everything is, um, all the shadows flee, right? Well, that's the very point. The time of day when the sun is supposed to be brightest is the time where it becomes like night when Jesus is on the cross. Now, I remember, again, when I was in Philadelphia, we had that solar eclipse. And anyone in Ohio? See, it was about three or four years ago. See, the, 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 the solar eclipse, right? Okay, good. And um, you know what I'm talking about when this eerie kind of darkness happens when, when uh, the sun is... Uh, when the, the solar eclipse happens. And it's like all the birds stop chirping. You're like, wow, this is weird. And it happens sometimes when a storm is on its way in, in the summers of Ohio and you just feel the air change. It's like, wow, things got cold and dark all of a sudden. A storm is about to take place. But what's happening on the cross of Jesus, it's not an eclipse, right? You'll read people that say, oh, that, that must have been what it was. Everyone just... Thought it got really dark, but it was a solar eclipse. It happened to happen when Jesus was on the cross. Yeah, for three hours. This is not a solar eclipse. It's not, a, it's not just a rainy day. For three hours, the sun stops working. This is a miracle, a supernatural event from God. And it is like God is causing nature to make a big, loud comment about the cross of Christ. What is that comment? 
What is God saying? What is nature shouting when the sun goes dark? It's this, that on the cross, Jesus experiences God's wrath against man's sin. There's another way to put that. The perfect anger and punishment of a God who must punish rebels who have rejected his kingdom and run um, away from him bears down on Jesus on the cross in a thick cloud of darkness. That's what's happening. You say, where did you get that? Well, darkness in, throughout the Bible is this symbol of God's punishment, his wrath. Um, you see that, we, we already read about that, right? Amos 8. What does Amos 8 say? It says that on that day when God comes in judgment against his people, suddenly what? The, the sun at the brightest time of the day starts working, stops working. And you don't have to go to Amos 8. You see this all throughout the Bible. What about the plagues of Egypt? What was one of the, the final plagues? It was darkness that came over Egypt when God was um, preparing to take the life of the firstborn of Egypt's sons. And that's what we see over and over again in the Bible is that this darkness is, is a symbol, it's a picture of God's punishment, that he is the kind of God who cannot just look away from sin and ignore it. No, where there is sin, it must be punished. The lights have to go out. Creation has to be reversed. The good things that God has given have to be stripped away. You think, you know, kids, you know that light is a really good thing. That's why sometimes we're afraid of the dark at times, right? You, you, you like a nightlight and it, it's a good thing to be able to see when you're walking around. Well, you know what it's like when suddenly everything goes dark, right? You freeze and it's scary. And you say, something really important is missing. That's what's happening on the cross of Christ. It's this, that the sin of the whole world, every wrong thing that all of us have ever done, it's laid upon Jesus, the Son of God on the cross. He who knew no sin, the innocent Son of God, became sin. And the Father takes away his goodness, even the goodness of his presence, so that the other gospels tell us that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the darkness was not nearly the, the most frightening and concerning thing for Jesus on the cross. The darkness is just pointing to something deeper. It's that the closeness and the light of God's presence was removed from Jesus and his face. Friends, Jesus on the cross went into the dark so that you and I can know the light of God's presence. And that's what the second miracle points to. What's the second miracle? First, the darkness settles over the land. What's the second thing that happens, kids? There's something that gets ripped in two right from top to bottom. And it's the, the curtain in the temple, the veil in the temple. Now, think back to Old Testament Israel. And what you have is all of the worship of God's people was 
uh, it happened in a building, in a place. And that place had different sections and so that you could go deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And uh, one thing that everyone knew, it's really important, is that at the very center of the temple is where God dwelled. That's where he was, his presence was. That's where the light of his face shone. But between the people who were coming to worship and God's presence was this big, huge curtain. It was a veil and it was a beautiful, majestic veil. It was um, 30 feet high, 30 feet wide and one, one inch thick. So you hold up your hand, you know, and, and, and look at how thick your hand is. It's about that thick. Now that is a heavy curtain. That's a big curtain. And you think, well, what is that doing in the middle of the temple? Well, here's what it's for. It's like a sign that says this. Do not enter. No trespassing. No sinners allowed. And so the situation is that sinners could come right up to the curtain. But God said, no closer. I am a holy and perfect God. Only one time of the year could, could a person go through that curtain into the, the place called the most holy place where God dwelled, the high priest. And when he went in, guess what? They had to tie something around his ankle so that if he did anything wrong, they'd have to pull him out dead. That's how serious it was to enter God's presence. No one could except the high priest one time a year. And so that curtain said, don't enter, no trespassing, stop or you die. So on the cross, when Jesus dies, that curtain gets split into from top to bottom. That's important, right? In the other gospels, that detail is included. It's important because it's saying men didn't do this. God was the one who, who ripped it in half. What is God saying to us when he draws our attention to that temple, that, that the curtain that's ripped in two in the temple? He's saying this, that on the cross, Jesus opened the way to God. He opened the way to come close to God again. See, here's, here's what we need to see. That Jesus is, when, when Jesus took upon himself the darkness of our sin, when he took God's judgment and wrath and punishment upon himself, the only way that God could respond to Christ's sacrifice on the cross is by loudly proclaiming through ripping that, tinsel, that, that uh, temple curtain, access is open, welcome, come close. And so now the temple, because that curtain was ripped in two, here's, here's what we know, that any further sacrifice, you know, shedding the, the, the blood of bulls and goats, or even trying ourselves to, to please God and, and, and make up for our sin. That's inappropriate. It's inappropriate to try to bring some sacrifice before God when what he did through Christ on the cross was the perfect sacrifice for sin. Hebrews chapter six says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. See, that's, that's the hope that you have in Jesus. Do you believe that? It's a kind of hope that says, God, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to get close to you. I deserve that 
curtain between me and you. I deserve that thick darkness. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, I can come trusting in him. And what I see is not a a, a thick curtain, but an all access pass to God's presence. That's it. Come on, come close. There's nowhere you can't come with respect to me. There's no hidden place from me. What does this mean? It means this, that you don't have to fix up your life to get close to God. God wants, God wants to change you. Don't, don't get me wrong. God wants to see you become more and more like Jesus. But if you say, God, I am a messy person. My life is full of darkness. God, God says, you don't have to fix that in order to come close to me. What you have to do first is to come close, to draw near, and to say, I need you, God. And then he starts to change you. It also means this. You don't have to cover up your shame when you come before God. You ever feel that? That there's some aspect of your life that maybe here even at worship you're saying, okay, I don't want to think about that because I'm going to feel so guilty before God. God says, you know what? Don't cover that up. Bring it to me. There's no curtain between me and you. There's no shame that needs to be hidden. Anything that makes us ashamed to come close to God, God says, I've already seen it. Don't hide it. Bring it to my feet. And there's hope for change and peace with me. The torn veil says it all. Welcome. Come close to God. And Hebrews 10, 19 affirms this. It says, therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through his flesh. That's good news. But how do we know that? How do we know that's true? Well, there's a third miracle. And again, tour guide Luke He says, all right, we're not done. Back up. You need to look at something else on the cross. And it's this. We've seen the darkness descends. That's the first miracle we've seen. And then we also saw uh, the, the veil rips in two. And finally, we see that the Savior dies. The Savior dies in verse 46. Now, how is that a miracle? We know Jesus is fully God, fully man. So how can... How could it be a miracle that he dies? Well, there are several things about his death that are miraculous. Now look at this. What does he do? He cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now here's what's so crazy about that. This is not how people normally die. This is not how crucified people normally die. Crucifixion was death by suffocation. You think, well, you know, how, how do people die when they're crucified? Do, do they bleed out? Do the, do the wounds kill them? No. I'm not going to get into graphic details, but you, you need to know that what happens is a person on a cross after hours and hours loses strength to pull themselves up and to expand their lungs and breathe. And so what happens is normally when people are crucified, they just... They can't breathe anymore. They've, they've lost the strength to be able to do that. And, and slowly and surely, they, they suffocate and die. It's horrible. 
Now here's a centurion at the foot of the cross. And he, um, a centurion, by the way, is a soldier, a Roman soldier. And he is a veteran at seeing people die. He's seen a lot of people die in his day, maybe out fighting barbarians in the field or, um, you know, here crucifying people. Jesus is probably not the first person he's crucified. And there he is at the foot of the cross and he looks up and he says, this is not normal. There's something about the way that Jesus dies that is just not normal because Jesus is able to expand his lungs and cry out with this loud voice. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And it's as if, indeed, it is the fact that Jesus chooses the very moment that he's going to die. No one steals Jesus's life. Jesus doesn't rage against death until the very last second where he says, I just can't anymore. And he dies. No, he says, now's the time. And he dies. He gives up. He willingly gives up his life. And so the centurion just looks up. He goes, what? He's amazed. It's not just that Jesus willingly gives up his life that is so miraculous, but also look at his words on the cross. He cries out Psalm 31, the very words that David cried out when David was cornered by his enemies. He says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now, this is amazing confidence that Christ has. He's enveloped in darkness. The eerie darkness presses down upon him with great weight. And yet, Jesus trusts his father in the dark. All the lights are out. There's no nightlight to comfort Jesus. But he trusts his father. He trusts that darkness of death will not hold him down. But God the father holds his soul in his capable hands. Jesus sees in his final moment the light at the end of the cross. He he sees the light of the empty tomb not far away. And he trusts that God, the Father, will get him there. That's amazing. That's a miracle. And friends, you've already heard the good news about Jesus. That he took God's wrath upon, that you deserve upon himself. That he died to give you access to God. Well, now you need to hear that Jesus, the confidence that he had on the cross, is the confidence that you can have right now in the darkness. You know, it's, it's no surprise that when the first person who dies for the faith, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, when he dies, guess what his last words were? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Martin Luther, his last words, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, that's the kind of confidence that you and I can have. Whether, whether we're just afraid of the darkness today and we say, I need a nightlight. I'm afraid. You know what you can pray? The same prayer that Jesus prayed. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I I need your capable protection. You can pray that when you're scared and even when you're scared of death. Because we're all, we can all be very afraid of death. But we can pray the prayer of Jesus because we know that Jesus' death was from us if we trust him, for us if we trust in him. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I I commit my spirit to you. Guide me to resurrection life.
I don't know if you've ever seen a Christian die. You know, we, and today, today we often hide death. You know, it, it happens in clinical settings behind walls. But once I, I saw, I was with my great grandmother when, when she passed away. And she was a believer. And you know what? For the last few years of her life, she um, had dementia. And there weren't a whole lot of things that were, were clear to her. But I remember the moment before she died. A light kind of came over her face. And she said, She said, I'm coming. I'm coming. Jesus. And there was something that she saw. I don't know if she saw it, you know, with the her own eyes, but I know she saw it with the eyes of faith. She saw the Lord. She saw the Savior. And that she could commit her soul into his capable hands. That, that's the hope that you and I can have. That's what Jesus is giving you when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's giving those words to you. Now, how do we respond to all this? I want you to note finally that uh, Luke wants us to see that there are all kinds of different responses to this. You know, you've got the crowd that walks away disappointed. They came to see a spectacle and instead they're kind of guilty that they took Jesus's life. They don't know what to do with that guilt. So they kind of just walk away. And then you see Jesus's disciples, right? And they're kind of standing at a distance watching. It won't be until they see the empty tomb that they really get it. But you know, then you have the centurion and he says, I know that this man was innocent. I believe that the Lord Jesus, and Luke, the tour guide, wants you to see. He wants you to, to see the cross, Christ crucified, and then he wants you to have the right response. And what is that? It's the response of the centurion confessing at the foot of the cross. I know this man was innocent, but even more than that, because friends, you've seen not only Christ Christ crucified, but you've seen the light at the end of the cross, the empty tomb, so that you can say, I know he was innocent. And guess what? I know that he was my savior. He died for me. Can you say that this morning? I invite you to lay a hold of the cross. To see the darkness descend, to to see the veil torn, to hear Jesus' words as he dies, and then to say, Father, I need this. I need Jesus. I have no hope without him. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You have guided us to the foot of the cross. Take us there again, but help us, Lord, not to linger there, but to see the light at the end of the darkness, the light shining forth from the empty tomb. For three days, Christ was in the darkness. And yet your hands were capable and you rose him from the dead and you will rise us from the dead as well as we die hoping in the Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.